From noon on, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And about three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, this man is calling for Elijah. At once, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a stick, and gave him, it to him to drink. But others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Then Jesus cried again with a loud voice and breathed his last. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. The rocks were split. The tombs were also opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. After his resurrection, they came out of the tombs and entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now when the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were terrified and said, truly this man was God's son. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. By your grace and through your mercy, we pray that you would allow these words to come, to point to the word just read and to the word made flesh in Jesus the Christ. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. I don't know a whole lot about classical music, but back when I was in college, I had to take a class where I learned about different classical music and musicians, and I was taught a little bit about the meaning of those works of art, the stories of the symphonies. And the most common story that symphonies tell is called the strife to victory redemption paradigm. That is to say that a symphony may, symphony may start out with an allegro in the first movement, are you impressed, Barb? fast and happy, but in the second or third movements, the strings weep and the oboe pipes begin to whimper. There is deep bass beneath and violins rumble and chords clash, and the music is there to deliberately tie you up in knots of anxiety. But by the fourth movement in the finale, all of that tension is resolved, all of that suffering is redeemed and the trumpets shout a triumph it is the strife to victory or redemption paradigm. You can think of Beethoven's third symphony. It's victorious, it's redemption. Beethoven's third is called the Eroica, which means heroic. The finale is heroic. And if you've ever experienced it, the audience instantly leaps to its feet at the end with a standing ovation. That is a finale. It makes you stand in applause. It's Gene Hackman in Hoosiers. It's Eric Liddell in Chariots of Fire. In a very different symphony, Tchaikovsky's Sixth, it is known as a feeling, an emotive, a passionate symphony. And the third movement of his sixth is bright and cheerful. And then you get to the fourth movement, the concluding movement. The fourth movement concludes by just fading away with a sad, diminishing whisper. Tchaikovsky's tempo, tempo is mournfully slow, a creeping, dying lament. It's not the way to compose a finale. Arnold Schoenenberg said that Tchaikovsky's sixth starts with a cry and ends with a moan. The Sixth Symphony was Tchaikovsky's last symphony that he ever wrote, and nine days later, he had died. By most accounts, Tchaikovsky died when several classmates from his boyhood school 
were horrified that he was casting shame on their alma mater because he was gay, threatened to expose him, and they forced him to drink arsenic. For years, the official story in Russia was that he had died of cholera after drinking a glass of unboiled water. But today, most scholars think that he died of arsenic poisoning, which apparently looks a lot like cholera. Some scholars think that Tchaikovsky's Six is a long lament that he wrote for himself. You know, I enjoy Tchaikovsky's music. At least I enjoy going to the Nutcracker at Christmas time. But even with my enjoyment of his music, I realize that I don't know everything that there is to know about classical music. I would say that that is the case with most of us, which may be why my college made me take that class to teach me something about culture, to teach me how to behave at a symphony so that I don't embarrass myself. Things like when the hallelujah chorus is played, the audience is supposed to stand and one does not clap in between movements of a symphony. I still remember Professor Brooks trying to explain this to a bunch of 19-year-olds who all of a sudden thought that we were so sophisticated because we knew not to clap. Ricardo Muti is a larger-than-life conductor known, among other things, for his hair, and I think of the character in Seinfeld, the maestro, was probably characterized after him. Will is actually laughing over here, so it must be true. Muti once said that, that uh, symphonies are culture, it's good for you. You don't have to enjoy it, you just have to sit there and take it and be better for it. You know, we're better for following the story of the symphony all the way to the end. Years ago, Moody was the musical director for the Philadelphia Orchestra and he was conducting Tchaikovsky's Sixth. And he finishes up the third movement and it's stunning and inspiring and victorious and redemptive and the audience leaps to its feet thinking it was the end because it was the redemptive note and Moody is not happy. And he never lowers his baton after that movement because it's not the end. There is still a fourth movement and the audience had lost count. These people had no idea that the sixth ends with a whimper. And so there is Moody holding his baton pointed to the heavens and the audience is cheering and he's unhappy and he starts wagging his baton back and forth like a fourth grade school teacher at an out of control classroom. You know, sometimes thinking about moments like this help me to consider what we are quickly approaching ourselves. Holy Week begins just two weeks from now with Palm Sunday and every Palm Sunday, after the adulation, after the palms, after the cheering children, after the hail to the conquering hero, there is more to come. There is another movement yet to come. Holy Week is next. And it is mournfully sad. Maybe this year even more sad because of the current state of sheltering in place. Maybe this year even more sad because the market is in a lament. Maybe this year because the earth seems turned upside down. Maybe this year even more because of the severity of the virus and the devastation that it is reaping on people all across the world. Maybe this year we need to remember more than ever that this is not the first time that the earth shook. It's not the first time that the world lamented Holy Week is a creeping, dying lament. There is the malice of his enemies. 
the betrayal by his trusted companion, the flight of his fearful friends, the denial by his favorite disciple, the false accusations of the court, the stinging lash of the whip, the brutal pierce of the thorns, the dull thud of the hammer, and the last sad rasping out of his dying breath. Like the fourth and final movement of Tchaikovsky's sixth, Holy Week begins with a cry and it ends with a moan. We don't applaud on Palm Sunday, that's only the third movement. We need to listen with him all the way to the end through Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday and Holy Saturday. We need to hear the lament. We've been looking at how each gospel writer records Jesus' death, and there's a sense in which the gospels of Luke and John end more like Beethoven symphonies with a cry of triumph. In the stories of Luke and John, they want to tell their story as a suffering to victory. Luke and John are so mortified by Jesus' death that they share redemptive and encouraging details about the way that he dies. Luke tells us that Jesus dies forgiving his enemies and welcoming a thief into paradise and entrusting the life that he lived to his heavenly father. He says, Father, forgive them, for I, they know not what they do. He says, Today you will be with me in paradise. And he says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And John tells us that Jesus dies caring for his family and his friends and finally letting loose with the call of victory. He says, woman, here is your son and here is your mother. He says, I am thirsty. And with his final dying breath, he triumphantly says, it is finished. They use Jesus' death to teach the Christian church how a savior dies with grace and kindness and compassion with victory. It's a redemptive death. But at the end of Christ's life in the other two Gospels, it doesn't end with victory. Matthew and Mark don't end with redemption. They end with a unbearable defeat. They end with a moan. They say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew leaves us so horror-stricken, so tongue-tied, he can think of no other way to describe the scene than to revert to the original Aramaic. You know, you can understand why these words were among the few that people remember in the actual language that he actually spoke then. Because if you heard those words once, you could never forget them. No matter how hard you tried, you could never forget those last six words. You know, there's an interesting book called Not Quite What I Was Planning. And in it, the editors asked hundreds of people, some famous, some not, to sum up their lives in six words, six word epitaphs. If you were given six words to describe your life, what would they be? Here are some of the attempts. Stephen Colbert wrote that his six-word epitaph is, well, I thought it was funny. Harold Ramis, another comedian, offered, came, saw, conquered, had second thoughts. Many of the memoirs are funny. Jewish mom, 
Baptist dad, atheist, surprised. One said, born in abject obscurity, never escaped. Was a rebellious teen, now raising one, became my mother, please shoot me. One said, macular de degeneration, didn't see that coming. Some are more poignant. Time heals all wounds, not quite. I wrote a poem, nobody cared. I still make coffee for two. And then from nine-year-old Hannah Davies, cursed with cancer, blessed with friends. So you're a gospel writer. You've told the whole story of Jesus' life from birth through childhood, adult ministry, suffering, and death. You start out your biography by telling us the genealogy of Jesus and the visit of the wise men. You share the longest of all his sermons in the Sermon on the Mount, and you share tremendous teachings and healings. And now it comes to his last breaths of the one who changed your life. And you have one last chance to gather up the meaning of his life and death. One last image to burn into your reader's memories. And you wrap it up with this. God, why have you forsaken me? There isn't anything more. It's the strangest editorial decision. In Matthew and Mark, the tempo on Jesus' death is a lament. Slow, dying lament. But perhaps we need this because we can never share the heights of his Easter victory until we've walked with him down the Via Dolorosa. Perhaps we cannot appreciate the resurrection until we have descended with him into the death that he endured for our redemption. Watch with him in the coming weeks. Listen with him. This is pathos. This is passion. But know also that there will be redemption. And maybe that's the most important message to each one of us, even this day. We ourselves are in a lament. But know that there is redemption. There will be resurrection. Amen.